All right, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 23. I left off at chapter 11 last time, and of course we were talking about Paul the Apostle, and here he was once again incarcerated, and the Lord came by night and stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. Be of good cheer. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. When God makes you a promise, when God says this is what's going to happen, you can bank that that's what's going to happen. There's not going to be any variance to it. Now, God is free and obviously sovereign to choose how he does that. But make no mistake, it will happen. So if God tells you you're going to Rome, you're going to Rome. It will happen. Look at verse 12. And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And they were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priest and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now this was the priest, the chief priest and the elders. Now think about this. Who knew the law that the word of God says, Thou shalt not kill. Actually in the Hebrew it means thou shalt not commit murder. And here they are, a conspiracy to commit murder, and they're confessing this to the chief priest. And they're telling, and they're all for it. They're good with it. They don't say anything. So they're a bunch of unscrupulous fellows, if you will. And so verse 15, now therefore, ye with the council signify to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow, as though you would inquire something more perfectly concerning him and we or ever he come near are ready to kill him and when Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait he went and entered into the castle and told Paul this is the only time any Paul's relatives are mentioned in the word of God so here's his sister's son his nephew is who it is just happens to be at the right place, at the right time. One thing you could always bank on, as I said just a moment ago, is God keeping his word to the T. He always does, always has, always will. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when the Lord stood by Paul and he said, be of good cheer, as you've given witness of me in Jerusalem, you are also going to go testify of me in Rome. But alas, obstacles came up in his way. And we're not talking just a little obstacle. This is a small army of men, 40 of them, who have bound themselves with a curse. We're neither going to eat nor drink till we have killed this man. So they've bound themselves under this vow to God, as though God would honor such an absurd vow. But they believed he would, and so they bound themselves with it. And they make this conspiracy against Paul. Not a small obstacle. 
but one that God was already working to circumvent. Nothing is impossible for the Lord, Genesis 18:19. Nothing's impossible for the Lord. If God declares it to be so, God is going to do it. You can bank on it. Every time the Lord has given me a word through somebody, like last Sunday night, and I'm, I am so open to words of wisdom and prophecy, and I thank you guys for being open to the moving of the Holy Spirit. I had another pastor uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, we went to a little outing. It happened to be right across the street from my house, another United Methodist. And I went over there and got to meet a couple of the guys, and just so happened, we knew a bunch of the same people in outer towns. And as a matter of fact, a good friend of mine was the one who married this pastor and his wife, and it was just kind of cool. So we got to kind of, you know, talk with these guys. But it's how the Lord moves and, and how he does things, you know. And how those things can change in a moment, in a split second. Because a lot of times you'll get a prophecy from somebody. And, you know, you kind of take that word of, and you kind of just set it up on the shelf. And you go, well, that's nice, you know. Maybe it'll happen. Maybe set it up here. And then as things begin to happen, you know, you might reach up and go, I'll put it down here on the third shelf, a little closer. Because it looked, well, maybe then as it moves, you just kind of move it down. And you start to see how God begins to move supernaturally, but in very natural ways. Had a very interesting prophecy given to me. I'm not going to share it with you now, but just note that it was. And from a man, I'm sure, that doesn't walk around saying, thus saith the Lord. Probably never said it in his life. But he said, the Lord told me. And I don't doubt it. And so he shared with me. And then all of a sudden I walk over there and the Lord begins to make connections of people I would have never met. It's not unlike what happens here with Paul or what happens in your life. And I think it's imperative that we who are living this life in Christ have to learn to recognize how God works supernaturally, naturally. He does it very naturally. And of course, the, 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 the downside to that is often we don't see it. Why? Because we sometimes can be spiritually numb. Why? Because we're expecting great phenomenon. When we say that the Lord does supernatural works, we want some great phenomenon to accompany that, you know, be it lightning or I don't know, something. You know, we want some spectacular thing. And God, for the most part, doesn't do that. He just moves, and he works. And all of a sudden, we just chalk it up. I had a guy tell me one thing. He goes, how come we don't see miracles like we do in the book of Acts? I said, I don't know about you, brother. I see them all the time. I do. I've seen everything from healings. I, I've, I've never seen anybody resurrected yet. I'm open to that. But I've seen all kinds of stuff. And, but, I mean, I've seen God's provision. I mean, so, but it always happens in a very natural way. But so often we don't recognize it because of the fact that we just were waiting for that big thing to accompany it, you see. And so we don't see it. But here's this young man, this nephew of Paul, who's only mentioned this one time. Now, where was he at when he heard this? I have no idea. But God just happened to put him there. And he just happened to hear of this conspiracy plot against his uncle. 
And he, of course, runs, and he tells the story. And Paul tells it to Paul. Paul says, hey, go tell it to the centurion. And so he goes and takes him by the hand. Let's go ahead and jump in and look at verse 17. And Paul called unto him, one of the centurions, and said, Bring this young man unto the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul, the prisoner called unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee that has something to say to thee. Then the chief captain took him by the hand. So he was evidently a fairly young guy. He took him by the hand and went with him aside. And privately he asked him, what is it that thou hast to tell me? And he said, the Jews, and I want you to take note of this. If you're taking notes, make note that he says the Jews. This kid does. The Jews agreed to desire thee that thou wouldest bring down Paul tomorrow into the council, as though they would inquire somewhat of him more perfectly. But do not ye thou yield unto them, for there lie in wait for him of them more than forty men, which have bound themselves with an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready, looking for a promise from thee. This young man, Paul's nephew, is telling the centurion, he says, the Jews. I think that's significant. And it's significant because Paul begins to use, you realize Paul's a Jew, right? <laughs> he even says of himself, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, he, he goes on that long thing. But yet now that he's serving Christ, and when he says the Jews, he's talking about those who are worshiping God according to the Judaic law is what he's talking about. And so this young man tells the centurion, the Jews are lying in wait. You know what that tells me? It tells me that this young man was a Christian. Paul had reached his sister. We don't know how many other relatives he had, but we know he had at least one sister and he had a nephew. And we know just from that one statement. Because had this young man been a Jew, he would never have used that term. That's a Paulinian term. You know, what prophet had you in the, in the Jew, or that I had in the Jews' religion, Paul would say. And so I think that's significant, that, that he had reached his own family, which is so typical of those of us who have come to Christ. Look at verse 22. So the chief captain then let the young man depart and charged him. See thou tell no man that thou art, show these things to me. And he called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready two hundred soldiers to go to Caesarea, and the horsemen threescore and ten, and spearmen two hundred at the third hour of the night. And provide them beasts that they may set Paul on, and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter after this manner. Claudius Lysias, under the most excellent governor, that's debatable, Felix, sendeth greetings. This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. And when I would have known the cause whereof they accused him, I brought him forth into their council, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law but to have nothing laid on his charge worthy of death or bonds. And when it was told me how that the Jews laid in wait for this man, I sent straight away to thee and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee, 
what they had against him, farewell. Then the soldiers, as it was commanded them, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatrius. On the morrow, they left the horsemen to go with him and returned to the castle. So the trip from Jerusalem to Caesarea is approximately 60 miles. 40 of that is through a mountainous terrain. And in that mountainous terrain, there was a lot of Jewish people that lived there. And it was a perfect ambush point, if you would. It, it would have been easy for them to have ambushed Paul there. From Antipatrius, which is at the foothill of the Jerusalem mountains, that's more of a flat land. They could see what was coming. And so they were taking Paul by that route because the Lord had declared to Paul that he was going to Rome. And he was not only going to Rome to preach, but he was going now in a royal way. I mean, he, what, a, what an entourage he had. 470 soldiers he had guarding him on his way there. He's actually even riding on an animal, you know. He's not walking. He's not in chains at this particular time. They're simply escorting him to Caesarea where he might be judged before Felix the governor. Now, Felix is an interesting fellow. Kind of a strange guy. Just over five years before this particular incident, Felix had been a slave in the Roman Empire. He had been released from slavery because his brother Paulus was a good friend of Caesar Nero. And, they, and he actually lived within his court. And so he was constantly interceding on behalf of Felix, his brother, who was a slave. And so Nero grants Felix his freedom. And because of continued intercession by his brother Paulus, eventually he's elevated to the rank of governor. He was the first ex-slave to ever be made a governor in the Roman Empire. So Felix is an interesting fellow. But a pretty unscrupulous one, really. And we, and we know from history that he was corrupt to the core. During this particular time, there was a very famous Roman historian by the name of Cornelius Tactius. And uh, he right up there with Flavius Josephus, as far as my humble opinion is if it matters at all. But he wrote about Felix, and he said that Felix had been a slave, and he still governed as one. And it's not a compliment. He said he governed as a slave. He was a scoundrel, if you will. He was corrupt. Felix had been a governor at this time over Caesarea, that area there, for five years. It'll be two more years he'll be governor. And at the end of that seven-year period, he will be ousted from his position by the Roman Empire because of his own corruption. When the Roman Empire throws you out because you're corrupt, you know you're bad. You know, he, he was not a good guy. We know he was married three times. We don't know his first wife's name, and I don't really recall his, wife's, his second wife's name, but I know that she was the granddaughter of Cleopatra and, and Mark Anthony. But he divorced her and then married Drusilla. So those were those happening in, in, in quick uh, concession. 
And even Drusilla was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. So this guy had been fairly lucky in his life. He got out of slavery, became a governor, actually married some very important women. And, uh, but nonetheless, he was corrupt. And he was a bit of a scoundrel. But this is the guy who the Lord allows Paul to set in judgment with. So this is the guy Paul is going to have to give his account to. So look at verse 33. Who, when they came to Caesarea and delivered the epistle to the governor, presented Paul also before him. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province he was. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, I will hear thee, said he, when the accusers also have come, and he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. So Paul winds up in Herod's uh, palace, actually. There's the judgment hall there. Caesarea was a pretty nice city. It's a, uh, a Mediterranean port. Uh, even today, if you like history and you're looking at history books and you look at all the ruins, the Hippodrome and all that stuff is from the Herod period. And so there was a lot of, lot, of, lot of really nice stuff. And Herod built that city up and he really did a great job. But here's Paul in captivity. But yet at the same time, he's living in some pretty nice accommodations. So the Lord's taking care of him. Even though he doesn't have his freedom at this moment. He's got to witness, he's on his way witnessing, you know, to governors and obviously uh, uh, people of the hierarchy, and he's on his way to Rome. But this first guy is the one he has to deal with. Look at Acts 24, chapter 24, excuse me, chapter four, uh, 24, verse 1. And after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullius who informed the governor against Paul, and when he had called forth, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that the very worthy deeds are done unto thee of this nation by thee, by thy providence, excuse me. We accept it always and in all places most notable or noble Felix, and with all thankfulness, notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Serious charges. After Tertullius finishes flattering and ego-pumping Felix, he begins laying out his charges against Paul. The Roman governor had little tolerance, or the government really in, in general had very little tolerance for troublemakers, especially Jewish troublemakers. I, I won't go into a long history lesson tonight, but you know, if you study it, you'll find it, it even at this particular time that they had already suffered many Jewish uprisings. And the last thing they wanted was another one. And they were always putting them down. And any Jew who rose up, who would stir up the other Jews to riot against the authority of Rome, they did not tolerate. They absolutely didn't do it. And so they were very leery of that. Um, Tertullius is a, is, is a prosecutor. He is a hired attorney. And these guys who are coming down from Jerusalem, the ones who are accusing Paul, they're the ones that hired him. And he's a great orator. 
I mean, you can already tell he's, he's flattering. He's laying it out. But he's also uh, unscrupulous. I mean, the fact is he begins to say stuff that's just not true. But that happens in courts even today. You get a good lawyer and he can just take the words and he begins to manipulate it to the court. And he begins to say, and look at what Tertullius is doing. He accuses Paul of sedition, of uprising. And then he connects that sedition and the uprising with him being a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarene. Now remember, the people who are accusing him who are coming down, this has got nothing to do with sedition. This has everything to do with the fact that Paul is a believer in Jesus Christ and a, de and a declarer of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so according to the way that they call heresy, Paul's going to say, this is the way he believes. That's what he's really called in question on. But what Tertullius is doing, and he's doing it very good, is he connects Paul as an instigator. And not only does he tell him that he's the, ring, he's the ringleader of these Nazarenes, Christians. And now he not only makes Paul a sedition stir, but he makes all of Christianity the enemy of Rome. You see that? So the guy's slick. He's very slick. But everything he says is just not true. Look at verse 6. Who also hath gone about to profane the temple whom we took and would have judged according to our law. What a lie. Not even true. Tertullius tried, like I said, to make this case against Paul, but then he says we were going to simply take him and we were going to try him according to our law. No, they weren't. Even Cilicius said they were going to kill him. I rescued him with an army. We took him away. No, they were a mob. It was a lynch mob, and they were going to kill Paul. But to listen to this guy, he makes it sound like, well, we were just upholding the law, and we were going to arrest him and put him on trial. No, they were it had nothing could have been further from the truth. The guy is just blatantly deceiving or trying to deceive Felix in making a judgment against Paul. And the chief captain Cilicius came upon us and with great violence took him out of our hands. Well, yes, he did. Because otherwise you would have killed him. Verse 8. Commanding his accusers to come unto thee by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. So whatever Jews were there at the moment, they're going, yeah, that's right. What he says is true, even though none of them were actually there. The Jews also said that these things were so. Verse 10, then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, for as much as I know that thou hast been many years a judge unto this nation, I do more cheerfully answer for myself, because thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Everything that was being declared against Paul was simply, you know, not true, except for, as we're going to see, well, at this moment, everything's just hearsay. But the only thing Paul is going to admit to is heresy, which I find laughable and interesting. Verse 12, and he says, They neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city, nor can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. 
But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Jesus said, all things that were written in the law and the prophets concerning me must be fulfilled. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus came and literally fulfilled everything that was in the law and the prophets. And Paul says, according to what they call heresy, this is the way that I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things that are written in the law and the prophets. And what he meant was concerning Jesus Christ. It is strange to think that at this particular time, that Christianity, the sect of the Nazarenes, the way, was considered nothing more than a Jewish heresy. And in some circles of the world to this day, Christians are looked at as no more than a heretical sect of Judaism. Not here in the United States. I mean, there's, we got plenty of our own heretical sects within Christianity without, without those. But there's plenty of people who, who do look at it that way find it interesting that in the early part of the church they called themselves the way. This is how they described it and where they got it. Now no doubt later on it became a derogatory term used by others, but it was the church that first used it. Because they weren't called Christians. We're told that they were called first Christians at Antioch. But if you will, turn with me to John 14, 6 and we'll find, I'll show you where they got it from. And you all know this verse, but it's one I'm going to close with. And of course, it was Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples, and he said, I'm going away, and you know the way. And his disciples said, well, we don't know where you're going, or, nor do we know the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so the church in its early years adopted the term the way. This is what they called themselves. The way of Christ. The way of living in Christ. It's a good term. I like it. Even to this day I like it. When it's truly lived out. You know, those of us who have been in the Lord or in the way, heard an old pastor tell me one time he had this one lady that you would, every so often she would get up to give her testimony and she would always start talking about her past and all the stuff that the Lord had delivered her from. And of course, you know, recounting all the evils that she had been engaged in. And she would stand up and say, you know, I've been in the way for 35 years. My old pastor said, you know, he always wanted to tell her, and that's your problem. <laughs> You've been in the way for so many years. But the church, the early church looked at being in the way as a way of life in Christ. You know, I was at a festival, whatever you want to call it, an outreach here recently, very recently. And I was listening to some music. 
And I know a lot of times, you know, our desire is to see people come to the Lord. And so we begin to talk about all the ills that we've done. And there is a place and a time for that, for testimony. There's, you know, you, never, you don't want to forget your past, lest you forget how gracious and merciful the Lord is. But you don't want to live in your past, lest you be hindered by it, and it become an obstacle in your walk with the Lord. It breaks my heart to hear people who can't move on from those things, you know. And sometimes when they're talking and they begin to talk about, well, the Lord delivered me from all the alcohol and all the cocaine and all this and all that. You know, and it, sometimes it almost becomes a, a one-upper. You know what I'm saying? When a, somebody else hearing you and all of a sudden they go, really? You used to do that? Well, let me tell you what I used to do. And the next thing you know, it almost becomes a brag fest. I heard an old pastor say one time that there was a young lady about the age of 15 or 16 and it was testimony time in their fellowship. They always made time for that. And the young lady stood up and she says, I just want to thank the Lord that he delivered me from prostitution. And he has forgiven me for the three abortions that I had. And he forgave me. And she went in this long, and people's mouths just hit the floor. And she's so young and so beautiful. And, and, and she had such a glorious walk with the Lord. And now these revelations were coming out. She said, because I gave my life to the Lord when I was 10. And I've never looked back. Thus he saved me from a life of prostitution and from abortions and from alcohol and from drugs. See, my friends, you, you don't have to commit those things to be delivered from them. God delivers you whether you've done it or not. You don't have to drink strychnine to know that it will kill you. God can keep you from it. So don't fixate on the past. The reason the church in general, globally, is in this condition that it's in is because we haven't matured to the point where we can move on to a life that is truly in Christ. Till we can walk free of the past. Where we can lift our head. And know that it is He that lifts our head. That it's what He's done that makes me right with Him. It's what He's doing that makes me hope. And it's His intercession for me that makes me rejoice. Living a life in Christ. They were in the way. This is what they called it. The early church. Now later on, like I said, some used it as a derogatory term. Those people who were in the way, you see. But I want to encourage you, whether you're sitting here or listening by radio, we need to move on in our walk with the Lord. We need to move on to maturity. This was a, an admonition that Paul gave, that we should grow, and, and we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in His Word. How do I do that, Doug? Through His Word. Through His Word. We wonder why people don't witness. We wonder why people don't give them the Word. Get yourself in the Word of God. Realize all that Jesus has done for you. Because, man, when you are basking in the grace and the mercy and the favor of God, 
Man, you want to share that with people. And so once again, those supernatural things like evangelism, which is an act of God, really. You know, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, it says, for by grace are you saved through faith in that, not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Nothing that we do for the kingdom of God is really us. It's the Lord doing it through us. We are merely vessels, conduits of his grace and his mercy. And if you've been a recipient of that, Paul said, if you've, been, if you've seen the Lord and you've been taught by him, oh man, I have. I have. And I want to share that with people. I want to tell everybody. This is what you can have. This is what it should be. I don't have to live in my past. I'm not going to write songs about it. I'd like to forget it. I'd like to put it under the blood and never look at it again. I will if I have to. So that I might have something in common with somebody who's suffering under the same thing so I could tell them about the grace of God and the restoration that's in Christ. But man, I don't want to get up and sing about it. I don't want to talk about it. I want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk about what he's done, what he's done for us and for you and what he wants to do for those who don't know him yet. That's what being in the way is. That's what the term, the Nazarenes, that's what it was. These were people who were living the way, the way of Christ, the life that's in him. This is what Paul's preaching. This is what he's going to tell to Agrippa as we pick it up next time. And poor Agrippa, like so many others, will say unto Paul after he hears, I'm a learned man. Agrippa's a learned man, a good man. Done some crazy stuff, but he's still a good guy. But he knows the law, and he knows and understands that way. So he knows. And after listening to Paul, he says, Thou almost persuadest me to be a Christian. Paul said, I would altogether that all these who hear me and you were not only almost, but altogether even as I am. Man, we all ought to be able to say that. I would that you all were, even as I am. It's not a braggadocious thing. It's not a mark of pride or of arrogance, but confidence in Jesus Christ. Paul said, I put no confidence in the flesh, but in him who has overcome it. That's what we're here to do, is to share that. You know, that's the life in Jesus. That's what being in a way is all about. Read ahead. It gets better. We'll be finishing it up next time. Father, we love you. And we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the life that we have in you. Father, I pray for those who listen to this broadcast. And Lord, I pray that you would open their heart if they have never accepted, Lord Father, and acknowledged all that Jesus has done. Lord, I pray that you would lay it on their heart, that you would give them eyes that are able to see and ears that are able to hear and a heart that can be touched by your hand. We love you. We thank you, and we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen.